Welcome to episode 100 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand papermaking and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert's studio, a hand papermaking studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and Papermaking Masterclasses here in the studio, and I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Before we get to this milestone episode, I want to tell you a bit about the series. I started this podcast to record the paper voices of our times, and my first interview was back in 2016 on a teaching trip to Tucson, Arizona, where I had a conversation with Catherine Nash in her studio. I was traveling a fair amount back then and conducted the first 26 interviews all in person, from Arizona to Iowa, Indiana, Minnesota, Colorado, California, Oregon, Texas, New York, the Netherlands, Santa Fe, and Chicago. I often recorded a video during these visits of the papermaking studio I was seeing, and these videos appear in the show notes for the corresponding episodes. You can find those at helenhebertstudio.com slash podcast. Look for the page for the episode I've recorded and find more information, images, and recommendations from each of the artists I've interviewed. There have been some great stories, like the one Tim Barrett told me in Episode 3 about how he was informed that he'd won a MacArthur Award. You'll have to listen to the interview to find out. And I really enjoyed episode number 58 with Elizabeth Howell King, Douglas Howell's daughter, hearing about his early experiences in Europe, how he collected rags to make into paper, and how driven and determined he was to get paper out into the world. And there are so many other gems amidst these 100 episodes. My first Zoom interview was episode 27 with Matthew Simpson of Green Banana Paper a really interesting and unique company that makes wallets from banana fibers. Simpson moved to Micronesia to teach and surf, and he soon realized that many people had to move off-island to find enough work to support their families. He put two and two together, with the help of one of my books, I think, and started turning the abundant banana trees on the island into paper. He now runs a company which supports dozens of employees. Episode 29 was the first episode to feature a non-papermaker. Many of you know that my interest in paper is diverse, so I branched out to include paper entrepreneurs, book artists, nonprofit organizations, paper cutters, paper engineers, printmakers, jewelers, surface designers, origami experts, paper artists, publishers, librarians, and so much more. So, Thank you, dear listeners, for sticking with me. Your love and support means the world to me and keeps me motivated. I look forward to sharing many more episodes of Paper Talk with you. Hey, listeners, I'm turning the tables today, and um, it's episode 100, and Barb Tettenbaum is interviewing me instead of me interviewing my guest. So uh, Barb's still my guest. Yay. And (laughs) 
She's a visual artist interested in the act of reading. She uses books, print, installation, and animation to explore this topic. And I'll put a link to Barb's website in the show notes. Barb founded her artist book imprint, Triangular Press, in 1979 and produces one to two books projects each year. I met Barb in the mid-90s at a papermaking conference, and then we reconnected later when I moved to Portland in 1998 uh, at the Oregon College of Art and Craft. Hi, Barb. Hey, Helen. Yeah. So great to see you. you I was too. able to visit you this summer. Yes. A tiny bit. And then I've also visited you in Colorado, which was great. Yeah. So it's, but it's nice to see you over Zoom. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I'm excited to have the tables turned. Um, I've been listening to your podcasts and they're so interesting. There's so much information on them. And I, obviously, I think people who are following this today have probably been listening to many of yours. But if you haven't, if for some reason this is the first time, I highly recommend scrolling through the many, many podcasts and uh, hearing the stories of all of these amazing people that we have in our midst or that we've uh, sadly lost recently that mm -hmm. luckily you were able to interview. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, this is, this is clearly a watershed moment for you. I mean, a hundred podcasts, um, but also you are, and I don't know if this is a spoiler alert for people who didn't know, but you're receiving the upcoming North American Hand Papermakers Papermaking Champion Award for this year. And let's say, do they give it every year? Is it every two years? Do you know? I think it's every year. Every year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's um, a link on their website, which I think um, Helen hopefully will put on her blog. Um, yeah. I that will. gives you yeah, a link to the other people that have received this. And I have to say, I'm just so thrilled that you got this award as well. Thank you. So partly um, this interview, I think, should take advantage of these two moments. I mean, I can't imagine that you wouldn't knowing that this podcast was coming up as a 100th and also receiving this really important award and recognition wouldn't get you to sort of look back on your career. And so I want to kind of mine some of that mm -hmm. um, in this interview. Um, and, uh, but I also want to do what you do and interview you also with some of the same questions that you give your interviewees. But I did want to just start with the bio that is listed on the um, North American Hand Papermakers uh, Hall of Champions announcement, which I think is a good introduction to Helen, if for some reason this is your first introduction to Helen. Um, so it says, Helen is the author of six instructional books on papermaking and paper crafts, and is widely respected as a generous teacher and mentor. Working from her studio in Colorado, Helen hosts classes and retreats and extends her outreach by teaching online. Her weekly Sunday paper e-bulletin keeps the field up to date regarding a wide range of paper artists and paper-related news. Her monthly Paper Talk podcast series features recorded interviews like this with papermakers, paper artists, paper engineers, designers, and entrepreneurs. She will soon release, and this is, you know, this podcast, um, her 100th podcast episode. Um, her contributions as an artist, author, and teacher have had a significant and important impact on the papermaking community. So I guess, yeah, I mean, Helen, your reaction to that, does that, does that feel like, I mean, do you feel um, 
embarrassed by any of that or you just feel like, yes, I'm glad to have a summary that calls in all of these things? No, I'm honored. Yeah, I'm not embarrassed. <laughs> I'm honored. This is what I do. This is what I've been doing. It's uh, wonderful to receive recognition. And um, yeah, I'm not done yet. <laughs> you talk about <laughs> looking back. I feel like, yeah, when I turned 50, maybe I started looking back. Um, so I'm still looking forward and looking back. Good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of nice in a way to give an award to somebody who still has many, many years ahead of them. And it isn't just an end, sort of end of career. Right. Um, it wasn't this nice that you did all of these things. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So um, as I said, I'm going to start with the questions that you often ask your interviewees. So tell me about growing up and any influences that led to your artistic path, your studies, early jobs, et cetera. And maybe start with where you were raised. Yeah, yeah. I I grew up in uh, Bryan College Station, Texas, where Texas A&M University is. And um, yeah, my father was a nuclear physicist, a professor. And my mother was mainly a stay-at-home mom, although she had a master's degree in divinity and then went back and got another degree in psychotherapy when I was a teenager. So, um, yeah, and I had a younger sister, uh, quite younger, four and a half years younger. So we didn't really have the same friend groups and stuff. So I ran in my own crowd. And I think my childhood was really filled with exploration. I was on my own a lot, just playing in the neighborhood with kids and climbing trees and mm -hmm. going through the woods and um, my mother did have a lot of interest in art and she actually, um, took art classes at some point when I was growing up. And so I would see her painting and doing pastels and she encouraged me to do different things. She actually hired artist friends to teach mm -hmm. me and my friends how to draw and do macrame like crafts and art. Uh-huh. Was it like so, an after school thing or a summer thing? Yeah, after school. Um mm -hmm. and I think she totally organized it and would drive us and you know, it mm -hmm. wasn't like a, an official program by any means. Yeah. We have some matching pictures in that way. My dad uh -huh. is also a nuclear was a nuclear, nuclear yeah. physicist and then my parents also organized me to go to special art classes after school that were yeah, very interesting and private. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. And, you know, um, when I was in high school, I, I wanted, oh, I got interested in architecture because my parents remodeled their house. And I remember the architect bringing over this physical model and the drawings and just being really interested. I, I was drawing quite a bit. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe I started drawing after that because I would like sit across the street from houses in our neighborhood and sketch them. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, so in high school, I knew there was like um, architectural drafting or drafting class. And I really wanted to take that. And it was hard with all the other subjects. But my finally, my senior year, I was able to take that class 
And it was really interesting because I was the only girl in that class, mm. but, I, but I was good. So the teacher gave me attention and mm-hmm. I don't know. I just have uh, interesting memories of that. Yeah. You think some of that impulse to study architecture led to, you see some of that influence coming into the books that you've made. Oh you yeah. Know, absolutely. Create, even the installations, this kind of creation of space for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I gave up on architecture only because, well, I went to Sewanee, the University of the South, a small liberal arts college. I really wasn't thinking much about like where I wanted to go to school. And my parents just said, you are going to college. And (laughs) we had spent my junior year of high school in Germany, which is when people usually look at colleges. So I was kind of late in sort of planning and thinking and I applied to a few schools in Texas. They really encouraged a small liberal arts school. And I ended up choosing this one. I, I actually had been born in Tennessee and they they knew of the school. And my dad took me to visit. And I went just because it was the furthest away from home. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say it was like the right fit or anything. My mother actually had mentioned Rhode Island School of Design, but mm-hmm. it was just too like out of my wheelhouse I think it would have been perfect looking back. That would have been like the place. Mm -hmm. But most of the kids in my high school went to Texas A&M. Only Mm -hmm. a few even went out of state. So it was just like a foreign concept. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I, yeah, I I interned for an architect back at at home after that first year. And uh, he was designing gas stations. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is not what I want to do. Again, I didn't have the vision that anything I wanted to do was going to take 20 years to figure out or whatever. Uh, But but I abandoned it. Somebody has to design those gas stations. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. But then so then you did go to college. And where was that again? What was in you said uh, it's in Tennessee, the University mm-hmm. of the South, right. in Sewanee, Tennessee. Um, there you had some art exposure. Yes, I got a BA in art, and mm-hmm. it was a very small school, 1,000 students total, uh, maybe five art majors, two huh. studio art professors, and two art history professors. Like it could have been really um, great. But again, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And um, I th- I think the art department was in real transition while I was there. Oh. So I just, yeah, I felt a little bit like I didn't get a lot of art. <laughs> but, then, but then you did, maybe because of that, you decided to take a semester off, right? Um, and it was important. Yeah, I actually spent a year, I went back to Germany for a okay. year. And, um, and you know, a lot of things in my life are serendipitous. Someone else got this scholarship because I had been in Germany for a year already. So they wanted to give it to someone else, totally fine. Mm-hmm. But she ended up not being able to go. So I got to go. And this was like a turning point in my life. Like, how lucky was that? And um, yeah, so I went to an art school in Germany, I had spent my junior year of high school there. So I had some language. Mm -hmm. And um, it was very different. It was like, all day long classes, 
um, professors, some, some weren't even there. They just showed you how to use the silk screen equipment. That was an example. And then you just went in and did it whenever. And I was like, not in the, an official program. So I didn't have these side meetings that maybe other students did, but one of the classes I took was, uh, called paper. Mm-hmm. And we, it really opened my eyes to paper as a material, which is what I'm still fascinated with today. So mm-hmm. we we made paper in a blender. That didn't interest me that much. I do remember doing it, though. <laughs> and we, we built furniture from cardboard. We learned pop-up constructions and just, yeah, explored the versatility of paper. And so that just captured my attention. And then Somewhere that year, I found a book by Masahiro Chatani um, about origami architecture, which is uh-huh. this way of cutting parallel slices in a sheet of paper and folding. It's very architectural. Mm-hmm. And I decided to explore that for my senior thesis. I had to do a thesis back at Sewanee. And so, um, yeah, I did that. So what did your senior thesis look like? It was small sculptures, um, you know, maybe 10 by 12, something like that. And just, I remember I got this chrome coat paper, uh-huh. um, slick on one side. I don't like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but white, and I just cut these slits and I didn't like copy Chitani. I went in my own direction, cut extra slits and folded them into sculptural forms but they were small scale but the idea was and his idea too was uh, how one sheet of paper can be transformed from two into three dimensions without Mm -hmm. removing anything oh nice so that that's really segued beautifully into the most publication that you've done Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah so things yeah things always are out there the little seeds that you plant in your Mm -hmm. life that still Right. need to give you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So then after college, what did you do? Did you take any time off or what did you, um, Uh, I mean, did you, I started my school. You just started started my life. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I did not go to grad school. Okay. Um, Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, on the way back from Germany, uh, I had stopped in New York city because my plane had a layover there and I really wanted to see New York And I think I spent two weeks there and I was just on fire. I loved it. And Uh so I, I wanted to move there after college. Um, So I was looking for ways to get there. And uh, I wrote 100 letters to galleries. I had some book with a list of galleries and sent them to New York. I got two replies and zero jobs. Uh, so that was just, uh, interesting. <laughs> what year was that? Can I ask? Do you remember what year? Yeah. 87. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, I had a friend, uh, who was studying art history and at college and she, she told me about, she knew I wanted to move to New York and she told me about this fellowship that Sewanee grads could get to go somewhere and work in public affairs. So uh, I applied and got it, and um, it was four months, which is hardly anything. But at that time, I thought that was a lifetime. Yeah. 
So four months of financial support. And I, a new professor had just started at our college from New York. So he had come from New York. So I asked him, did he know anyone working in public affairs? And he did. He knew the director of the Percent for Art program. Hmm. So um, I think those are still around today, you know, where it was 1% of this budget yeah. for city buildings were dedicated to artwork. Um, so I ended up moving to New York and working as an intern for the percent for art program. And then I got this money from my college and uh, you know, then four months later I had to find something else and they happened to be um, this percent for art program was printing a catalog because they'd been around for five years or 10 years. So it was like a mild a watershed moment for them. And um, <laughs> they, the printer came to visit and uh, just one of my employers was telling him I needed a job. And he said, oh, well, yeah, we could probably hire her. And so I worked for uh, Rappaport Printing, a huge commercial printing company for two years. Uh -huh. um, I was able to take graphic design classes and I got interested in graphic design at that time. I took some classes at the School of Visual Arts and I mm -hmm. uh, ended up working for some other companies that did more design work. And uh, then I think it was around that time, maybe I was at the printing company. My My father was working in Japan one summer and my mother wanted to go visit and she uh, paid for me to go along. Mm -hmm. uh, which was wonderful. I really don't think I had any impressions of Japan prior to that, but um, we went for two weeks and we stayed in a, a ryokan, a traditional Japanese inn in Kyoto for a week. Mm -hmm. And it was filled with shoji screens and tatami mm -hmm. mats and just the ambiance. Again, it's back to the architecture, you know, the, the space and the uh, materials. I loved those shoji screens. And mm -hmm. I remember spending time just in the department stores, looking at little origami folded things, you know, stationary and packaging. And, um, and I remembered, you know, oh yeah, paper. Uh, I love paper <laughs> and oh, paper is made by hand. Like I hadn't you know, a lot of people don't think about that. I think that was when I first thought about it. Well, I had made that paper in Germany, but, and I knew paper was made in Japan somehow. Maybe I saw handmade sheets. I don't remember. This was a long time ago. This was probably 89. And um, yeah, I was just like, this is it. I want to learn how to make paper. Went back to New York, um, started looking for ways to go. Um, I was not qualified to go, but I was bullheaded. Mm -hmm. I like, I applied for uh, the Monbusho scholarship. You have to speak Japanese to get it. But I was like, I'm going to apply anyways. And in doing these <laughs> applications, I didn't get it, obviously. <laughs> but in, in pursuing this, I, I knew about the Center for Book Arts in New York. Um, and I've discovered Dudoné Paper Mill. Mm -hmm. in doing this research. And I just called on the phone. I can still remember. And uh, uh, Mina Takahashi was working there and she had spent a couple of years in Japan, just, you know, she was freshly back. And I said, Oh, I'm looking for, I needed a sponsor or like a nonprofit connection to mm -hmm. apply for this scholarship. 
And she was like, oh, sure, come on over and we can meet and talk about it. So I ended up becoming an intern at Dudonay, and I was just there at the right time. They needed another administrative staff person, and I, I got hired, and I spent six years there. Wow, six years. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. So you, yeah, and so you were working helping in the office, but helping also in the, in the mill or what was your role there? Yeah, I was the program director. So I learned a lot of skills that have served me well. Like I wrote the newsletter. Um, I learned how to write grants. Um, I, yeah, I coordinated programs, hiring people to teach workshops. Mm -hmm. And then I had access to the studio as a perk. So Mm-hmm. I never really worked in the studio. I was always doing office work, but I could go in on the weekends and um, uh, play around in the studio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. And so after New York, then what? So Does Ted come in there at some point? Yeah. <laughs> so Ted is my husband <laughs> and we met in New York. Okay. So we moved to Portland in 98, but we met around 93. We got married in 96 in New York. And a couple things happened at Dudonay that were really pivotal. Again, serendipitous. Um, one was that an editor sent me a letter typed on paper or printed on a computer, but not email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, asking me if I'd like to write a book about paper making with plants. Oh, and probably everyone at Dudonay <laughs> thought that was crazy because I really didn't have the expertise, but I'd been playing around with making paper with plants. I was fascinated with the idea that you could grow a plant and turn part of it into a sheet of paper. And I had taught a workshop at the New York Horticultural Society uh-huh. called Compost Paper Making. Uh-huh. And this editor saw the description. And she's it's an editor I still work with today, Deborah Balmuth at Story Communi- or Story Books. And she had just become an acquisitions editor. So she had to come up with book ideas. And they primarily published gardening books, but they were branching into crafts. Mm-hmm. So making paper with plants was like the perfect tie-in, right? Yeah. A craft that used plants. So that's how I wrote my first book. And um, obviously I had to go through the proposal writing process and all of that. But when an editor seeks you out, it really helps. Yeah. So the confidence to write, I mean, obviously you had the confidence to do the research, but the confidence to write is probably a whole hat that you might not have been used to wearing. I mean, you wrote grants, but had you had any other sort of experience writing technical descriptions before? Uh, no. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, I did not enjoy writing in (sighs) high school and college. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I never dreamt I would write books. Um, but I realized pretty quick that writing about something you're passionate about is way different than writing about something a teacher assigns you to write about. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe, maybe in high school and college, I wasn't uh, brave enough to like pick my own topics <laughs> mm-hmm. or I don't remember, but, um, so 
Yeah, I remember uh, Deborah, the editor, bringing me up after we signed a contract up to the publishing offices and asking me, like, how do you think you will start? <laughs> and I was like, I had no idea. Oh, that's it, it was like a leap of faith. I just was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Yeah. You know? I mean, a leap of faith on both their parts. <laughs> both right, right. So actually, I have a, a question to insert, which is, since you have uh, written six six books now, mm-hmm. and you, you talked about it being easier in a way when you realize that you're passionate about something, has do you think that your writing voice has changed then over the course of these six books? Like, do you feel like you're, and I, I guess maybe my assumption is I would have thought at the beginning that you have to be this person, this authority that you've read in other people's books. And so you kind of hone your voice to that prescribed authority. And maybe now you, I guess I'm just positing, maybe there's a slightly different permission or perspective that you take when you write. Can you respond to that? Uh, yeah, well, it's it's an interesting question because I never read a lot. And I feel like I feel like a lot of the things I do, I go in a little bit blind and naive. Like even thinking of growing up with my parents, they did not bring up political topics or we did not have conversations about what was going on in the world at the dinner table, you know? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I feel like in a way that's been very freeing for me because I could just pursue my own way. It's not like we didn't talk about anything, but um so writing yeah writing the books I mean that that editor showed me some examples and I sort of got a concept it's like making a piece of art to me it's Mm -hmm. like okay what what is my overall outline and how am I going to put these things together and yes that first book required a ton of research um but how to is not the same as writing a novel, right? You're just mm-hmm. writing instructions. And the first one of the books that she showed me had um, little vignettes of, I remember it still, it's called Nature Printing. It's still in print. And the author had featured little artists, little stories about artists that, um, you know, how they got to where they were, or how they used nature printing. And that's something that I really loved and have always incorporated. So I'm, I feel like I'm more like a journalist kind of writer, mm-hmm. but I have zero training. Uh, I've just learned. And I remember I had, cause my husband is an editor and writer. Oh yeah. And, right. and uh, by the time that first manuscript was finished, I had him read the whole thing. Cause I yeah. was like, I don't know if this sounds okay. So he did some editing before I send it to my editor. I don't do that anymore. (laughs) Uh, So, so for me, it's more the creation of the, the whole book that fascinates me. I, then an editor takes it and they're like, well, maybe this should go here. Maybe that's not the right thing. Maybe that gets cut. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And the writing, I don't know. It just comes. Yeah. Well, one of the things that has really struck me are all the hats that you wear. Uh-huh. And um, and obviously, like at Dudenay, it sounds like you wore a number of hats. I mean, you were grant writing and then putting out this blog, which, of course, you're doing. Or they didn't call it a blog back then. It was a newsletter. Um, and you're doing that again today. But there are other things 
such as being a creative artist and being a teacher and all of these other things that you also do. Can you talk a little bit about how, what grew from what? I mean, clearly it's not always like just, uh, yeah. you know, one thing leading exactly to ne the next thing, but can you tell us a little bit of how your, all of these hats have come to be on your head? Yeah, well, I always did want to be an artist. So I was always thinking about that. And while I was at Dudonay, um, Mina Takahashi again, she she said I should teach a workshop. Like, this again, never thought I would teach. I had a teacher in high school that I just really turned me off to the whole idea of teaching. Oh, he, no. he was just so <laughs> negative about his experience teaching that I was like, Ugh, forget that. But, you know, that was a narrow vision, right? So <laughs> I, um, so she suggested it. So I thought, okay. And so I taught a workshop on making paper with plants. And, and so that just, that was the start and that kept evolving. And then also when I was there, um, you know, that's like a prominent paper making studio. I just landed in this very prominent place. I really didn't know what was going on in the, in the world of paper making. Mm -hmm. I got to know quickly because mm -hmm. they were connected, but I just thought I need something else to distinguish myself. Like there just aren't going to be enough people in the world who want to learn how to make paper. Um, I knew I wanted to have my own paper making studio one day, but I, I just couldn't envision uh, how that would look and how that would make me money. So I, I went back to the, the love of light coming through paper in those shoji screens in Japan. Mm -hmm. And I thought light, you know, light is really hmm. what interests me. And so I started looking for, um, instructions for making lamps and lanterns and and there weren't many there still aren't many today mm -hmm. um and but i found this lampshade supply company in um i think they're in new hampshire they're still around the lamp shop and i got some pamphlets from them and some how to and i just started teaching myself how to make lamps and looking at light coming through paper and and then also using ready-made papers because mm -hmm. again i didn't know that i would always have access to a paper making facility mm -hmm. so i better have a backup like something i could teach um so and and i had taken some classes at the center for book arts mm -hmm. um so i learned book structures from susan share haiti kyle barbara mariello i i spent a couple of years there doing work study and getting to take classes mm -hmm. um, that fascinated me as well. But I, I actually took a, I, I had at a point I felt like I had to choose paper over books. Like I couldn't keep doing both. So I chose paper, hmm. but now I'm making books again. So, yeah. yeah. So when, okay. So just to back up, yeah. Work at Dudenay, a lot of writing and then this invitation to make, to write this first book, a little bit of workshop teaching. But then I think when you left New York, you really had to, I mean, you had that, I think a book that was in the works when you arrived in Portland, but all the other things that you created once you arrived in Portland really were done, not quite from scratch, but kind of. Yeah. 
Yeah, they were. And I also started having children. I have two children, (laughs) you know, when I moved to Portland. So Mm -hmm. that was just kind of a crazy thing. We didn't want to have kids in New York City. That seemed really hard. So we moved to Portland where we had no family, (laughs) which in (laughs) retrospect is not so wise, but we didn't really want to live where our families were. So, um, uh, yeah, so I did. My second book was about to come out. The first one led to a second one called The Papermaker's Companion. And um, yeah, I had my first child. I I got interested in making products. So small lamps and lanterns. And, um, you know, I've never said this publicly, but when I got to Portland, I met the owner of Hi Hi Studio and he was making big custom lamps. Uh-huh. And that to me was like, oh my God, what there he's doing that. I can't do the same thing. Wow. So I so I went uh product instead of big custom. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I would have gone that way anyways, but it just influenced what I did. And so I was making these luminaria with watermark designs in them. Um yeah. and I ended up realizing after it was several years that I just didn't like production. I Uh, like design. mm -hmm. So I would design something, I would get orders, and then I would just hate the rest of the process or would have to hire someone. So then my income went way down. Right. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's not an uncommon thing with creative people is that you obviously are inventive and creative, but then maybe, yeah, like, hammering out the same thing for a store is not. Yeah. Right. I will say though, I have really strong memories of you pregnant and bicycling to OCAC to teach because you were teaching up there at the time and seeing you on the hill. I mean, that's not a small hill that you have to bicycle up in order to get to the college. And there you were like in the rain pregnant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We lived not too far. You're right. So, yeah, I had biked. I don't bike anymore, but um, <laughs> well, you are I biked a lot in New York. Like mm-hmm. I would do 100 mile bike rides, no problem. So when mm-hmm. we got to Portland, I was just used to it. Yeah. And Portland's hillier. So, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also remember all the things that you made for the gift shop. So I do remember your products. They were right. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. So then so then your time in Portland, you did you did establish a studio. You did a lot of collaborations at that time. I remember um, with different, some printers and poets. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that work and what it meant to make things that were really more gallery oriented or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's when I started going back to the book form and Mm -hmm. um, producing broadsides, a few broadsides, a few small one-sheet books, and then the projects got a little bigger. I was able to get some funding from Portland has a wonderful regional arts and culture council. We don't have anything like that here in Colorado. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I love Abaca, which is the banana fiber, and I've been exploring that for forever. Um, it shrinks as it dries. It's translucent. It just has these amazing qualities. And so, yeah, I made 
a bunch of, uh, well, I made a broadside with a string, untied knots. I love metaphors for connection mm-hmm. and knots. Like my wedding ring is a knot. Um, that's probably not that unusual, but <laughs> I just love the drawings of the knots untied. And I realized, oh, in paper, I could trap an untied knot between two sheets of abaca and you can still see it and you get that beautiful design and I could move it in different ways. It didn't have to just be like the, the, I mean, the drawing could be any way too, but so I did my first big artist book was called string theory. I name a lot of my projects after physics terms uh, because Uh of my father, uh, because I really didn't understand what he did, but (laughs) I love the words. So Mm -hmm. And so it was a series of these knot drawings that were in a box that I had Sandy Tilcock make, uh, box maker and Eugene. Um, yeah. And then my first installation was at Reed College where Barb's teaching now. Yeah. I think that was my first one. It was um, these disc forms that I've used a lot. They're shrunken abaca forms and they were all strung together in the space kind of going diagonally through the space and influencing how you could walk in the space. So that was architectural. Yeah. Yeah. And simultaneously I produced a film uh, called water paper time, which is images of the paper drying. Right. Because this, I was, I actually was having a discussion with my husband and showing him these pieces and how cool it was that, you know, I would do all these things and, go in the house, go to bed and then come back the next day and see what happened. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you should photograph that or something because, you know, capture when it's alive. So I was able to work with the filmmaker and make this film that actually shows the drying process. Yeah. I remember that whole body of work. That was fascinating. Just the work in your studio at the time you were doing a lot of yeah, embedding of structure into paper and then letting it dry and seeing kind of what Mm -hmm. created. Yeah. Hey listeners, let's take a little break here, and I want to tell you about the Paper Year, my annual subscription club, kind of like a year-long online class, featuring a new paper project every month. Get inspired with video and written project instructions designed to spark ideas that keep you creating for the rest of the month. Explore creative paper techniques, including origami, pop-ups, paper weaving, book arts, paper cutting, paper stitching, and more. And join our growing community of paper lovers online to learn and share in a warm, encouraging, supportive, creative community. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com to find out more. Registration will be open again from December 15th, 2022 until January 15th, 2023. Studio work, collaborations. When did you do your first sort of installation? Or that was at Reed, you said that was the first one. And did that open up a desire to do more of that? Like, what did you learn from that first one that led you to do more? Yeah, I'm not sure I can make a, (laughs) I can answer that, but I have another thought, which is my first community installation, Mm. which was called Mother Tree. Right. And um, yeah, yeah, it, really involved the community 
more. And that was more because I had the vision. When my son was born, um, I just this occurrence happened, but the peace didn't come till much later. So I was at the Japanese garden. He was a newborn and we lived near the Japanese garden. So I would go there. It's a beautiful garden, people who are going to Portland. Mm-hmm. And um, I was sitting on a bench nursing him. And I saw a man with two children nearby and I could tell he was going to say something. And I was a little nervous. Like, was he going to like scold me or something for nursing in public? Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know. This is things you think of as a new mother, but he turned to his children and he said, that is one of the most beautiful things in the world. Oh, and it was like so Uh touching. So I held on to that idea. Oh, lovely. I remember telling someone about this idea. So that was 1999. I remember specifically being at a conference in 2005, telling someone, I'm going to do this installation about um, mother's milk. I don't think I had quite the vision yet what it would be. Mm -hmm. And then I think I did it in about 2010. So this was a long process, but I created a giant paper dress using abaca with string embedded to give it some form and structure it's actually the armature is a lamp making armature so all these things you know come together in the work and um i wanted to have crocheted mother's milk that fell to the floor and turned into roots sort of symbolizing the mother as provider and just thinking about oh my gosh women have nursed their children forever like that's A very common thread, right? Mm -hmm. I I like thinking about universal themes. And and then I got a little grant to install Mother Tree at the Portland building. I remember, yeah. And that's a public space. You're supposed to engage the community. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'll sit there at lunch hour every day because it's an office building, people going in and out. Mm -hmm. And they can crochet with me and the roots will grow up over time. And... Um, yeah. And I realized pretty quickly that I was going to need help crocheting all of these roots. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> my vision was way bigger than my hands could do. So <laughs> I sent at that time, I think maybe I had just started an email newsletter. So I sent a note and, uh, to, I ended up getting four or 500 roots and they were so much more interesting than if I had done this myself, I would just have picked maybe five different yarns and, you know, gone to town crocheting them. But because other people were sending them to me, they just chose their own thing. I told them they need to be natural in color and fiber. And so there was homogeneity in that regard. But um, yeah, someone sent me seaweed that she crocheted. And people told me all these stories, like, when they were crocheting with me on site, but also when they were um, sending them in the mail, you know, just stories about motherhood and stories about quitting smoking, like crochet gave them something to do with their hands. So they quit smoking and oh, nice! just, you know, all of these stories came with the community participation and made the piece so much richer. Yeah. I think, I think that's something that we're not really taught. Right. You no, know, especially in art school, I think. I mean, maybe now it's changed a little bit because of social practice. Right. But this idea that of the sort of uh, genius single artist that we all have to kind of invent our own universes and we're in our studios on our own—that um, 
that all that we get from working with other people, all that they bring in and their perspectives actually makes us and our artwork so much stronger. Oh, and so, absolutely. And I mean, your, your practice almost entirely, I would say, is really plugged into other people. I mean, you talk, you know, I, I asked you a little bit earlier about, you know, how you see your art. Um, obviously, you work in very collaborative mediums. I mean, even making books, even if you make the whole book, it's still, it's going to be held in the hands of a reader. It's a very, it's a much more sort of social interaction than in a gallery where somebody's standing right. at a six foot distance. But, um, and then obviously the installations that you've been doing more and more really involve community and their voices or trying to engage them, maybe not directly in providing their efforts into your projects, but making um, the work illuminate their lives and their mm -hmm. strengths. And so, I mean, I know that you, you did the step into the light project recently at the library in Colorado. And I watched the, I highly recommend watching this, the videos. There's a, a lovely video about its making and its installation, but then there's also a really great interview. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think actually in there is kind of a question about, you know, has it always been, and it sounds like it has been in your, your DNA to kind of want to connect, to want to make connections as opposed to having a kind of a solo studio and gallery existence. I mean, you said you're curious about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, um, yeah, at early on, you know, I approached some galleries and I just, I wasn't ever ready or I didn't have enough of a body of work. Um, and I like to do different things. I think mm -hmm. if galleries, you know, you kind of have to, they need to be able to tell their clientele what you do. Right, you have to so brand you can't yourself. like yeah. move around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that never really was a thing. Um, I, I actually, I'm working on a proposal right now where I'm thinking about myself as a teacher and an artist. And I think step into the light is a great illustration of the combination of those two things, because mm -hmm. I learned how to make this Japanese lantern form way early in my career. And I, I taught it for years and years and that's all I did. I never used it as um, an art form. Mm -hmm. um, I did mother tree did have that structure. So it had the form and then um, yeah, I have done a few projects with this library in Denver and was just kind of trying to do another project with them. And the timing was right. And I actually, a student early on said, wouldn't it be cool to have a giant light, uh, light like this that you could walk into? And, and I kept that in my mind for yeah. 20 years. Mm -hmm. And um, you don't actually walk into step into the light. You walk underneath it. Right. But um, yeah, so I was able to bring that to life as an art piece and it's got a quote that you read as you walk around it uh to um you may think your light is small but you can but it can make a huge difference in other people's lives and so i really i love this idea of thinking 
of yourself as the light and what shines in you. And mm-hmm. I'm so fortunate to have found that so early in my life. Yeah. And then to step out of the light and think about how you can shine your light in your community. Yeah. I don't know where all of that came from. You know, I think my we went to a very liberal Episcopal church growing up that I really liked. And I, I somewhere something about that experience of community. I saw I saw that church as a community. Um, we did fun things. We did art. We did fi- trips. We it was just fun. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe in some way, I'm just trying to continue that sort of community. I grew up mm-hmm. in a really small family. I said that we we didn't really have big dinner table discussions, and so. <laughs> I have some yearning. My best friend had a big family. You know, maybe it's just like this um, yearning from childhood. Yeah. Um, so what what art projects are in the work next for you? Or is there something already in planning right now? Yeah, I'm going to do um, paper weaving is another fascination of mine. And mm-hmm. I also came through... Um, illuminating paper ironically because paper Uh weaving doesn't really have to be illuminated but I was making these lights way back at Dudonay Mm -hmm. and I thought oh weaving that would be cool like I think I just remembered weaving in grammar school like over under very plain um, paper weaving and I thought oh that might look cool illuminated but then when I actually got it onto a lamp it wasn't interesting because you have the same paper in front and in back. So when you illuminate it, they just blend. Right. Um, When it's not illuminated, you see the difference and then they blend. But there were some other things that happened. The slits of the weavings, the light came through. And so I, I, I came up with this way of cutting windows to let one paper shine more than the other and differences. And so anyways, I've been, teaching paper weaving and exploring paper weaving for a long time. And um, I teach an online class called weave through winter, which is a daily practice where we, we weave for a month every February. I have about a hundred people that join me. It's really amazing. And it's amazing to see what they do. Um, And so I want to finally do an artist book that has weaving because I did one broadside with a weaving, but I really haven't made art with weaving. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm gonna make an artist book that has paper weavings. And is it is it weavings that are just done by hand, or does it actually use a little loom in any way, or is that? No, it's all by hand. And all by hand. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Yeah. 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 But with paper, you can you can cut the strips and shapes. You can you can do so much more with paper weaving. Well, I'm not gonna say more. It's just different than right. weaving fiber on a loom. Yeah. It's way different. Yeah. Well, some of the hats that I think we didn't get to, I'm curious because your studio right now is pretty darn isolated. Um, yep. I mean, I almost didn't find it. And when you do find it, it's sort of this really <laughs> scary turn right uh-huh. at the edge of a gorge that you don't expect there to be a road. And if you miss it, you, you know, plunge, I don't know, hundreds <laughs> of feet into a river. Anyway, but it's beautiful, um, but definitely having to think about how do you lure people not only up there, but also into your conversations and into your spheres. And I think, you know, one of the things that is so remarkable is how much you use um, digital media, 
you know, here you are preserving paper, right? <laughs> right. And you're also like really completely involved in like every new form of communication. And so I, I guess the question is in there as like, did some of moving to a place like Colorado and having your studio be so remote, did that encourage you or, or give you inspiration to have to find other ways of, I mean, obviously the pandemic did this for all of us, right? We were so isolated that we had to find yeah. new ways of communicating. And you and I are actually Zooming right now, which is such a great benefit of the pandemic. Yeah. But, you know, before the pandemic, you moved up there. And so I'm, yeah, if you can kind of tie together the strings that I'm throwing yeah, at you. Yeah, right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we moved here in 2012. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned earlier that my husband, Ted, is a writer and editor. And so he's been freelancing, working full-time some. You know, it's just been a rocky road for us financially. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so he got a job offer here to edit the city magazine, Vale Beaver Creek. That was 2012. And my kids were in middle school at that point. And I was like, yeah, we need the stable income. Let's go. And, um, but then it was like, okay, what am I going to do? They had school, he had a job, I had to figure out what to do. And it really put a fire under me. And so I just was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I had worked with a few business coaches, which I think is really important um, for someone trying to do this on your own. Cause I had no idea I was even running a business and how much money I needed to make and how to look at income and expenses. And so I had started that before I left Portland. But when I got here, I ended up finding this amazing studio, which <laughs> you, you you described. It's an <laughs> old, old schoolhouse in Redcliffe, an old mining town. Only like 250 people live there. I don't live there. I commute up there. And um, it's like affordable because I live mm-hmm. near Vale, which right. is not affordable. <laughs> <laughs> so I was so fortunate to find it. And this little town only has a post office, an inn, and a restaurant. Those are the only businesses, mm-hmm. um, aside from people like me who run their own business. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, maybe people would come to Colorado for a retreat. So that's one thing that I sort of planned out. And then now I'm going to have my eighth retreat next summer. So a one week retreat in my studio. Um, But I also, uh, you know, when I first started writing how to books, and I had a name in in my small little paper community, but the internet wasn't that big. I knew nothing about marketing. Mm -hmm. So I really finally was able to capitalize on that after we moved. So I started writing a blog in earnest. I just thought there are going to be people out there that might read this. Mm -hmm. I love figuring out what's going on and keeping connected in the paper world. So on Mm -hmm. my blog, I share different things I learn about or hear about. And so it's much bigger than just what I'm doing in my studio. And, um, Yeah. And I started teaching online. I just knew other people through this coaching community who were teaching online classes. I just couldn't even fathom that that would be a thing. I was traveling quite a bit, maybe five or six times a year to teach at universities, art centers. Um, And, but then I thought, well, I'm going to try it. If they're, they're telling me they get a hundred students and you know, that's like 
would be a pretty good amount of money for a class. So I started teaching these six week online classes. Um, and it, it was successful. And one thing led to another. And uh, yeah, the pandemic hit. That was <laughs> a bummer. But I ended up um, starting a membership program, which I again, I had seen other people do this. Like, so I now this is coming up on the end of two years where I have this subscribers who are a part of my membership program called the paper year. It started out actually as a calendar I produced with a project a month, Mm -hmm. a print calendar that I would send out. And then a friend of mine asked me, are you making any money? Cause you have to hire a designer and a printer. (laughs) And I was like, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not, you're right. So she's like, why don't you go online and let's do it online. And so, yeah, so that has been really fun. I, I love designing with paper and finding new papers. So I design a project every month. Um, it often is technique oriented. So it's like, here's what you can make. This is the project, but the technique, you can take it in all these different ways. And I've just built up all these. I know lots of ways because I see what other artists are doing and I can show them books to look at and websites. And mm-hmm. it's really engaging for me and hopefully for them as well. Yeah. Um, so Okay. So just to summarize, you've got a year, let's see, wait, the paper year, which is every month. Mm-hmm. Then you've got this group that was doing, what was it again? Like, again, like they were weaving? Weave through winter. Weave through winter. Yeah. So that's every February for okay. a month. And then your blog posts are how, how often? Every week. Every week. Um, and then the podcast. <laughs> Which is every, every month. Uh, every three every weeks. Month. Yeah. Every three weeks. Um, is there anything that you do daily that we don't know about? <laughs> no, I haven't gotten I haven't haven't done that. So, <laughs> I've thought about it, a paper a day. No. Yeah. Yeah. So so what can you describe your work ethic? Not not what your day looks like, but what it, what would you say is your work ethic? Um well, I'm hardworking. And I, uh, I go to the studio three days a week, Mm -hmm. but I probably spend 15 hours max in the studio. And then the rest of the time is writing my blog, following up with dealers for my artist books, bookkeeping. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I would say, yeah, I'm. It's not that I'm not focused in my studio, but often, yeah, it's that's probably the least focused area. Like, I know I need to write the blog every week. I know I need to produce a podcast. Those are, like, real concrete. Mm-hmm. I, I have to come up with the projects. So I make an artist book maybe once every two years. I do an installation maybe once every five years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other things right weave in and out of all of this (laughs) Mm -hmm. do you see um anything emerging as a new a new opportunity for communicating i mean has nfts like made you curious (laughs) (laughs) um i mean is yeah is there any like sort of new platform or technology or something that you can see yourself plugging into to have another way of 
connecting with people? Well, not a new one. Um, I, I do feel like hand papermaking is kind of sliding back. Like I'm really proud that my books are still in print mm -hmm. 20 years later, because yeah. if they don't sell enough, they go out of print. Right. So obviously there is enough interest that these publishers, this publisher keeps those books in print. Yeah. Um, so I, and I created a video called the papermaker studio guide mm -hmm. 10 years ago, which kind of, um, is parallels my book, The Papermaker's Companion. Mm -hmm. But I have an intern here right now, this month, and I we're filming some little I'm because I'm showing her how to do things in paper. We're filming it with the eye towards them being YouTube videos or somehow to create more of a community around um hand paper making. Because mm -hmm. I don't do that online. I haven't gone to like teaching paper making online. Right. It's more um, paper crafting. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, you know, here I'm telling you I'm doing this and hopefully I will actually publish these videos because <laughs> they're still really in the uh, evolution phase. Knowing you, they will. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That definitely is. Well, we're sort of getting close to yeah. an hour, but I there's a few things that I wanted to still ask you. Um, and again, it's it's it's, and and maybe these two things are kind of hard to put together because asking you like who's been really influential to you, how who you've considered to be your most important mentors, and then think of thinking of yourself and your legacy, kind of in the same sentence might be a little daunting. I know it would be for me, but if I can kind of maybe start with the you know, who has been, I mean, you, you did mention a couple people already, but if you can talk about people that you consider your mentors and what you learned from them, what you think was what you, the takeaway from knowing them and studying with them. Yeah, there are really so many, and it's not like I spent a lot of time with any one of them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's more like um, getting an approach from someone because that's how I look at other artists. So early in my career, I met Susan Scher through the Center for Book Arts in New York. And mm -hmm. I really was interested in how she was connecting panels, which is something I do in my work. So she didn't make paper. She was making books, but her books unfolded and became performances mm -hmm. and uh, I assisted her at Penland. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of like was on her. I'm like, if you ever teach somewhere, <laughs> I want to be your assistant. And it worked out. Um, and we're still in touch today. Um, and so I really see her. And she also was fascinated with different attachments and connections, like putting zippers between boards. And, uh, you know, I was working at Dudenay at the time and Canal Street, had all these hardware stores with washers and different metal things. And I remember putting those in handmade paper. So I was doing my own thing. She wasn't making paper. I was kind of interpreting things that she was doing and figuring out, Ooh, how could I connect sheets of handmade paper? And, and Heidi Kyle was another, um, I think maybe I took one weekend workshop with her and then I've just crossed paths with her at the paper and book intensive when we were teaching both of us and she's contributed projects to some of my how-to books. Um, 
just her inventiveness, like looking at something in real life, like uh, I'm not going to think of something like a file folder and right. thinking, oh, what if I like did that fold a hundred times in a sheet of paper or I made a hundred of them, put them together. Like just that. I love, I really, those were two really influential yeah. people. Yeah, those are great inspiration. I'm, I mean, a lot of us fortunately had Haiti in our lives in different ways. Um, yeah. She taught a lot at the paper and book intensive and then obviously in New York um, and all around. Um, and Susan Sher, I think is now in, she's still in Alaska mm-hmm. and teaches, comes down <laughs> to the lower 48 to teach every now and then. Yeah. But yeah, I highly recommend obviously both of those people yeah. if you get a chance. I'll put those um, in the show notes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so I guess thinking about this moment um, again, is there something that both you would want people to know that maybe hasn't ever really been said about your career or that you're thinking about the most in this moment as well? Like that you really, you, you sort of see yourself really in focus in a way that you, um, for some reason is new to you. I mean, maybe, like you say, maybe it's just, you know, it's just like, isn't this nice? I got these awards and these are happening, but I've been working hard all this time and I know what I've been doing, but is there any unique perspective that's coming at this time? Well, I really like to think about the past and the future. So Mm -hmm. I love thinking, I own a pair of paper making molds from England Mm -hmm. and I went to Wokey Hole, which was having a sale of, they, they made a lot of paper there. And I went in maybe 2006 or seven and purchased a set. They were clearing out, so they were affordable, but I just love thinking. And they had watermarks on them mm. from made in wire from whatever company they used to make molds for every company that needed stationery or letterhead made. And I just love thinking about, oh my gosh, I am making sheets of paper on these molds that someone else made paper on for years and years. And this is so cool, this connection to the Mm -hmm. past through this tool. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, all of everything I do really is in hopes that paper making won't die out. It'll continue into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I really feel passionate about um, making a living as an artist. Like it took me a long time, but I am actually, I could, I think I could support myself. Uh, <laughs> finally, <laughs> after all of 30 years. Um, yeah. And I have my first paid intern right now because I really believe I want to share if, you know, uh, the techniques I know and the skills I can pass on to the younger generation mm-hmm. so that they can carry this forward into the future. And coming here is like, you have to have a car, you have to stay somewhere. It's not cheap, you know? So it just felt like I needed to be able to offer stipend and I actually partnered with Arnold Grummer. So I'm going to give them a shout out if they would contribute 
uh, part of the salary that yeah. we're paying for this one month internship. Nice. I love uh, that handling old equipment, like having your hands on actual analog equipment that's been passed on is a, is a place for deep, deep inspiration and understanding, especially in this digital age, you know, right. where people hardly have their hands on anything. They have maybe a finger or two or a thumb or two on an object as they're being creative, but. Yeah. yeah. And I've been reflecting on that quite a bit, the creative process in terms of even just going from your mind to your hand, because mm -hmm. I will look through books and look at websites and get inspired and sort of even I can like in my head, see how turning the sheet over, you know, doing this fold, how it looks in my head. But when you do it in your hands, mm -hmm. something else happens, that haptic experience. And I really am passionate about that. I'm telling people in my paper year all the time, because I think a lot of them just look and they're like, oh, I don't want to make that, you know, yeah. but until you actually try it and do it, yeah, you don't know what that is. There's some other level of yeah. understanding. That's my, my big message to my Reed College students, you know, going from Oregon College of Art and Craft where the students were very hands-on to this very, very cerebral right. group of students um, who come into my classes mostly to escape their academics. And then they think that what's in their heads is what they're going to make. And I keep saying, like, your head is not your studio. You know, yeah. like the studio is in your, your body is in the studio and there's mm -hmm. materials, there's your hands, there's intelligence in your hands. Your hands are going to mm -hmm. teach you things, the materials are going to teach you things. And when they get that aha moment, when they see what they make, when they give themselves over to the process, it's just fantastic. Because then, of course, it's blended with their very, very smart brains. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I think and then, there's a message beyond, you know, read college that needs to go into the world right now. Oh, absolutely. And I remember because we were both at OCAC, um, mm -hmm. you know, there were, uh, well, I won't name the company, but shoe designer students were coming there to because they were designing on the computer and right. had no idea about the materials and right. these shoes are being produced that maybe would okay and maybe not like <laughs> you gotta like check the material. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this has been great. I really appreciate you doing this. Good. Well, it's been fun for me. I went some places I didn't expect, which is lovely. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Barb. Thank you, Helen. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, 
and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. The reason, the